you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Uh, Well, it is a joy to be with you uh, this morning after what has been such an encouraging and beautiful week uh, in which prayers were answered, lives were transformed, uh, and God's people came together in worship, in love, all around the good news of the gospel. And this morning... Uh, We're not only joining with people online, but we're also joining with a handful of our churches across our movement. So I want to give a big shout out to our church at City on a Hill, Melbourne East, City on a Hill, Brisbane, uh, Gold Coast, Wollongong. I think that's all of them. Well, there's there's more. There's so many more. Geelong. Let's let's thank the Lord for all of God's people uh, coming together around the good news of the gospel. If you've got a Bible handy, uh, it's my joy to read the Bible before we welcome on uh, Matt. Chandler. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 13 to 14. Ephesians chapter 5, 13 to 14. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. City on a Hill, it's my joy to welcome up uh, Matt Chandler. If you have not had the opportunity of meeting Matt, Matt serves as, a, as the lead pastor of the Village Church. Uh, they celebrated this year 20 years of ministry. Praise the Lord for that, uh, for gospel proclamation, gospel people. Uh, Matt has joined us at the conference. Uh, He's here with his wife, uh, Lauren, and their three beautiful children. Uh, He loves Jesus, and Jesus loves you. So why don't we put our hands together and welcome up Matt Chandler. There we go. That was on me. Check one. It's good to see you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Um, while you're turning to Ephesians 5, I want you to be able to look at that and kind of look that I'm not making any of this up, uh, but actually it's in the Word of God. But I, I would be remiss if, if I didn't talk about the, the hospitality of city on a hill. I, I don't know if you know this, but I've known Guy for probably, I mean, it's got to be close to 15 years. Um, he's been to Texas several times, and every time he comes to Texas, um, we try to return the hospitality. And so, uh, last time him and Ness were in, uh, we took him out to Fort Worth where the stock show and rodeo was. Uh, and this is a picture of us just in front of um, the, the Texas flag. I, uh, Texas is a little bit, I don't know how to place it contextually. Maybe like New Zealand has just kind of got a weird pride that we're kind of our own thing. And um, the United States is lucky to have us. And uh, if it weren't for us, it might just spiral into anarchy and chaos. Uh, and then because we wanted him to have the true Texas experience. Uh, we put him on the back of a longhorn. Um, and so let me show you this guy on the back of a longhorn. Now, the next part of this story, I just need you to brace for, buckle up for. And um, I don't know if you knew this, but um, longhorns, like horses, um, they're super sensitive to uh, the, the heart of the person that, that's on them. So if that person is panicking in their heart or is nervous in their heart, the animal can feel that and will feel unsafe and might go crazy. Uh, and so I don't know what guy was feeling in this moment, but this bull went nuts and that led to this. And so you can see here <laughs> that guy got thrown to the back and put a whole different outfit on. I had to grab hold of the bull up front because I'm Texan and this is what we do. Uh, my sweet bride is trying to hang, and I don't know where Vanessa even, I don't know where Ness got the pistol. Uh, we were not carrying that day. And, and so you, you can see that um, as good as uh, Melbourne has been to us with its coffee and cafes and people and metropolitan beauty, we, we've gotten Guy and Ness in, into some true 
Texas swagger. And so uh, here, here's what I want to do. Now, I want to pray for us, uh, and then I want us to just dive into this passage. And so if you will uh, oblige me, would you just kind of cup your hands in front of you? If you're not a Christian or you're a guest here today, we're not trying to be weird. Nobody's going to put anything in your hand. Uh, we're just trying to say, we're trying to posture our physical bodies in a, a way that, that kind of activates um, some receptivity in our spirits. And so why don't you just cup your hands in front of you? And I'm going to pray for you. Um, you. You don't have to, like I said, if you're not a believer and you're just a guest with you, man, you just come along for the ride, all right? Um, Father, I bless these men and women in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, you, you know the story, you know the background, you, you know how they've come in here today, whether they skipped in here or limped in here today. You are good and gracious. You love these men and women. And so will you minister to them in the deepest parts of their spirit, the deepest parts of their heart? Uh, I ask that they would leave with a gladness and joy that is greater than whatever they came in with, and that you would minister to both your people, and that you might, even in your mercy, grant the gift of faith and belief to those who aren't quite sure what to do with all of this yet. Uh, we need you. Uh, I'm not good enough. This, this team's not good enough, but, but you are kind and compassionate, and our trust is in you. And it's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen. Amen. So it was 3 a.m. In fact, to be precise, I think it was 3.07 a.m. Uh, I was in from uni uh, and, and I was, uh, I had just gone, I had just gotten home from going out with some friends and I'm sitting uh, on the couch uh, trying to unwind from my night out and, 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 and I'm watching TV when I hear my little sister um, scream, the most terrifying scream I'd ever heard. It, it, it wasn't just like a, a murmur. It was like someone was trying to murder her in her room and she sprinted into the living room screaming at the top of her lungs. It was so terrifying that I tried to scream, but my adrenaline had flooded my system. I don't know if this has ever happened to you where you've been so frightened that you tried to scream. And I feel like I'm a masculine guy. And I tried to scream like a barbaric yelp, and all that came out of my mouth was, ah, and, and I didn't know what to do, so I tackled her into the couch, and I've got her pinned on the couch, and, it's, and then she's screaming and screaming, and I cannot wake her up. She's screaming like a, a scream of pure terror, and I can't get her to stop screaming, and I can't wake her up. Um, there's... There's this way that you and I sleep, it's, there's REM sleep and non-REM sleep, and our bodies all night long are clicking back and forth between REM sleep and non-REM sleep, and there's some weird things that can happen in that transition between the two types of sleep. In fact, uh, some people actually get up and walk uh, during that transition, so they're sleepwalkers. A lot of people, in fact, what's most common is they talk in their sleep. In fact, my wife's not at this service. She'll be at a later one today, but my wife is a talker. On our honeymoon, uh, we're laying in bed. She shoots right up in the middle of the night and says, wake up, Patty, it's Christmas. <laughs> and I'm like, who's Patty? And it's July. And, and so this is Lauren still to this day will just start a conversation with me in the middle of the night and then get perturbed that I'm asking for clarity. So she'll say something random, and I'm like, what do you mean by that? And she's like, I know what I'm talking about, Matt. And I'm like, well, great. Will you help me know what you're talking about? Because I haven't a clue. And then she'll respond with something like, whatever, and then roll over like I have done something wrong. Like I woke her up. So Lauren talks. Um, but for my sister, in, in this period of transition, either because of some repressed trauma uh, some darkness, spiritual darkness, or, or just some sort of natural occurrence. She is convinced that something's trying to kill her and, and trying to kill us in the house, and I can't get her to wake up. She, she is stuck in a state of terror, and I have tackled her into the couch, and it is simply fed this space that she's in, which is neither awake nor asleep, it's this space in between. And that space in between is what the Apostle Paul uh, is addressing to the church at Ephesus here in our passage. And so look back uh, at this passage with me. This is Ephesians 5, 13 through 14. I'll put it in its context here in a moment, but here's what it says. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. 
For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now let me tell you what's happening before we get to this passage. Uh, Ephesus was one of the ancient wonders uh, in, in the first century world. It was a massive city, and it was the place where the temple of Artemis was. The temple of Artemis was massive, twice the size of the Greek Parthenon. It was also the central bank of the ancient world, and it was also an extremely perverse city. Worship of Artemis involved hundreds of eunuchs and virgin priestesses and temple prostitutes, and worship of Artemis was crazy, erotic, and perverse, and this is the place. You can read all about this in Acts 19. This is the place that when the gospel landed and the gospel was proclaimed, started a riot in the city because as the gospel worked through the men and women and people began to surrender their lives to Christ and began to turn their back on the perversity of the day that they were in, the sexual promiscuity, the idolatry, the feasts that would almost always devolve into orgies and and wickedness, that as they turned their back, those who were making money off of Artemis worship saw that they were losing money on the bottom ground. They actually started a riot against the Christians. Can you imagine Can you imagine a gospel work in Melbourne that that was so powerful that people who make money off of wickedness could no longer make money on their wicked trade? This is what happened in Ephesus. And Ephesus would be similar in Melbourne in that it's an influential city in the country. It's kind of this epicenter of the arts and and finance. And it's a destination that people go. And, And this is what Ephesus was. And when the church started, in Ephesus, it started with a bang. And this is being written about 15 years after that outpouring of the Spirit that led to this riot. And the Apostle Paul is concerned for the Christians in Ephesus that over the period of the last 15 years, they have been lulled back to sleep. That steeping in this perverse culture, steeping in this godless culture, steeping in this kind of twisted, broken economic system because you had to join a guild in order to make money and those guilds would have these feasts and those feasts would devolve into licentiousness and perversity and there were some who were justifying, you can read about this when we hear about Ephesus in Revelation 2, that they have begun to backslide and they're not as zealous for the kingdom of God and for the worship of Jesus, but they've actually been lulled to sleep. And so the the apostle Paul here, it says, wake up. Now there's two kinds of parents, at least, and this is a theory, um, when it comes to waking up a kid. There is the sweet parent, who, who will like, you know, flip on the light and come sit on the bed, like scratch the back. Hey, shh, shh, shh. Hey, it's, um, yeah, we've got school. I'm going to need you to, whenever you get a chance, I'm just going to ask you to get up. I know it's tough. I know we had a long, so just whenever you get a, you get a chance, why don't you just get up and, and then well, I'll have Brecky here in, in the kitchen waiting on you. And then we need, we need to go to school, but I need you. I know, I, shh, shh, I know that there's that parent. And, and then there's the other parent. And, and the other parent is fine if this kid has to work through issues later in life. So this parent like, bam, clack, sheets off, get up. And, and, and what's in view here when the Apostle Paul says to sleepy Christians, wake up, is the second. This is not a when you get a chance. This is more akin to, hey, the house is on fire, get up. This is, hey, you are in danger. You you are the kind of sleepy which might just lead to death. You have got to get up so that the light of Christ would shine on you and life would return. He's making the argument that Christians over a period of time have become numb to the wickedness of their day to the point where they're comfortable in it and it's no longer bothered their spirits. And if it doesn't bother our spirits, then we're not prayerful, we're not missional, we don't see the kingdom as the driving force of our lives. We just try to be good folk that are better than most while we attend church on Sundays. 
And Paul saying, hey, get up. That's not how we started. Wake up. That's not the call of God on our lives. You'll be bored and ineffectual if you try to live the Christian life that way. Get back up. Now, I think the, the way that I might be able to encourage us today is just to give us language on how Christians get put to sleep, like how this actually happens. And I, and I think there are three primary ways. They're not, they're not the only ways, but there are three primary ways that Christians over a period of time begin to get a little sleepy, start to spiritually yawn, fall asleep while still going through the motions of, I go to church on Sunday, I know what's right, I know that Jesus is real, but no longer leaning into God's call and mission on their lives, right? So there's three ways. Here's the first way we fall asleep. I, I just called it the anesthesia of deceit. The anesthesia of deceit. And here's Here's how this works. In the narrative of human origins, like the the question of where did we come from, the the Christian looks to the book of Genesis, and our narrative is better than all the other narratives, right? In the ancient Near East, all the narratives were that there was some sort of violent conflict between gods, and and it's kind of fanciful and silly. There's even one one of the Babylonian stories that basically that this god, uh, like, and this is just their belief, not mine, it's just fanciful, like, like past gas, into the mouth of another God, and that's kind of how, I mean, it's just fanciful and silly, and, and, but it's always built around war. But our narrative is that the triune God of the universe, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in perfect unity and delight and love, overflows onto the canvas of creation, creating everything that we know, and he calls it good. It is the Christian story alone in all creation narratives that say that the universe was born of love and delight, not of war and chaos. No other story tells the story of creation like the Christian narrative. And here's what we read. This is Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, what I want to point out to you is how broad and generous this invitation is. So out of the overflow of God's perfection, gladness, love, and beauty, the universe comes into existence. He he creates this space on earth that we call Eden, right? That that place that's ordered and beautiful and the Hebrew idea of shalom, right? This this idea of uh, like everything's beautiful, everything's working. In fact, it's said of the woman that they are naked and unashamed. That that has nothing to do with nudity and everything to do with the state of their hearts. Hey, look at me. Can you imagine what it would be like to never feel like you have to hide anything? Can you imagine that? You you know that that question that's often haunting your soul, like, are are you fake? Uh, Are people going to find out that you're not quite what you, can you imagine what it would be like if you didn't even have the capacity to ask that question, you were naked and unashamed. This is shalom. This is Eden. And God comes to the man and woman and he says, hey, you see it? All of it is yours. Every tree, every bush, every it's all yours. In fact, not only is it all yours, but I'm giving you the call to go into the whole rest of the earth that's not ordered like this, that's not as clean and neat is this, and I want you to establish those places like this. The theologians call this the cultural mandate. It's why we need to make stuff, because we are like our creator, and we've been given this mandate to fill the earth, to subdue it, and bring order to chaos, and and the broad, generous invitation of God is, do you see all of this? It's all yours. Enjoy it all. You like that? Eat it. You like that? Eat it. You like that? Cut it down, build a house with it. You like that? You like that? I mean, it's just, it's all yours. Except for this, because this, you you do this, and really bad things happen. So in my love, I'm telling you, all of this is yours, broad and generous. Don't don't eat this. You, You eat this, everything that's beautiful, right, and good fractures, and death will reign. Please, 
don't do this. Now, what happens is in Genesis 3, the serpent comes, and what the serpent loves to do, because uh, the serpent is uh, Satan, principalities, and powers, it is um, the, the enemy of God and his people, and he comes, and he takes the broad, generous offer from God. All of this is yours. Enjoy all of it. Please be careful of this. And he instead shifts and makes everything narrow and restricted in the minds of Adam and Eve. Listen to Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see what he just did? He took God's broad and generous offer, like the whole garden is yours. Take and eat from anything you want. Just stay away from this because it will kill you. And what did the enemy do? Oh man, I can't believe God's not going to let you enjoy the trees of this garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Now this is important on how we fall asleep. It's a rare thing for the enemy to go right at you. Right? Notice that he didn't say, hey, you hungry? You want something to eat? He, he doesn't bring the fruit to Eve and say, hey, man, I know it's been a long morning of kind of subduing the earth and filling it. Would you like something to snack on? He rarely comes right at us. What he does to Christians is he begins to take God's broad, generous offers, and he begins to, to get in our head about how God's not really for us, about how God's trying to keep us from something, how God is taking from us, how he's not for us, but he's uh, against us. And so the way this works, especially with Christians, uh, is we receive the gospel with gladness. We hear that our sins uh, have been forgiven, and we enter into this relationship with God, and yet we're still living in a broken and fallen world. And, and all of us still have our own compulsions. And those compulsions could be in the realm of, of money and power. Those compulsions could be around lust and sex. Those compulsions could be around anger and violence. All of us still have these compulsions that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying out of us over a period of time. But what the enemy will do to put Christians asleep is he will move towards them and say, I can't believe God wouldn't let you express yourself like that sexually. Certainly he doesn't love you. Like why would he take that from you? What's wrong with this? Do you see what the enemy does? He, he doesn't come to you directly. He, he wants to have you question the character of God. He, he's not, he's not, it's not even really about the issue. It's about God's godness. It's that God isn't good, that he's not merciful, that his way isn't beautiful, and that your way is better. That this is actually what got humanity in trouble to begin with. This is what fractured the universe to begin with. Not like don't do this and do this, but rather this idea of I don't think I can trust God to be enough for me. So I'm going to live life my own way. And, and here's what I found. Again, I've been at the same church for 20 years, so I've got this kind of insight when you, you know, draw back two decades and watch people's rhythms. One of the primary ways that I've seen this play out in the life of Christians, like we want to talk about deconstruction and we want to talk about people that leave the faith. My experience is the majority of the time, not always, but the majority of time, what happens is a Christian will get hyper fixated on some secondary, non-primary aspect of theology, and it becomes all they ever want to talk about and all they ever want to argue about, and they use it to create distance from God and other believers. This is what happens. So, I, I mean, you, you name the doctrine. I, I don't know. Uh, I have, like, I had a dear brother I've just been walking with, and his thing was like, why would God ever put the tree in the garden to be begin with? If I sin, that's his fault. And I was like, wait, wait, what? And then, you know, trying to call him back to the gospel, trying to get him to lift his eyes to the beauty of God's grace and our salvation from that brokenness. And this is all he wanted to talk about. And what he did is he, he used it to create distance from me, used it to create distance from uh, all of his community, this Christian community they've been walking with so faithfully for so long that he began to hyperfixate. Now, the voice in my friend's head is the voice of the accuser saying, you're not to blame for this compulsion. So what happened to my friend is life was hard. His marriage was difficult. 
He had a, a sick kid, and, and here comes the whisper. After all you've done for God, I can't believe that he's doing this to you. Which J.J., I, I think, tried to combat with truth. Well, well here, here's what the Bible tells us. But why would, he ever, why would he ever put the tree in the garden to begin with? Why would that even be there if he was loving? And then the next step is, yeah, I can't believe he would do that to us. And now, distance from God, distance from community, and asleep he goes. The anesthesia of deceit. Now, this isn't the only way that we can be put to sleep. Uh, Jesus tells this story uh, of uh, a, par- a parable of what the kingdom of God is like. And this parable is like, he goes out and he casts seed and some seed fell here and some seed fell. And it's in, in that parable that we see the other two ways that a Christian can be put to sleep. The second way, the anesthesia uh, of, uh, of um, deceit is the first, that uh, he's going to get you to question God's goodness. And then the second way is what I would just call rootlessness. This is Matthew 13, 20 through 21. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Um, There are two types of love that are celebrated in our culture. One is young love and one is old love. Right? So young love is every romantic comedy you've ever seen, right? It's just two young, really beautiful people, and they're drawn to one another, and one of them's lied. Just, and you're like early on in the movie, I was like, just tell the truth. This movie's gonna be two hours long. It could be an hour and seven minutes. Just tell her the truth, but he doesn't, but he's romantic and it's clever and it's fun. It makes us feel good. It's young love. And then old love, old love celebrated. Man, you see a couple of 80-year-olds still holding hands and still in love with one another. There's something about that. They're like, I want that. Like, I've never met anyone that sees that. Now, I've seen people have seen that. It was like, kind of nasty. I don't know. There's something about it, but kind of gross. Like, you know, get a room. You're 80, you know. And, um, but we see that, and there's something in them. It's like, yes, I want that. I, I, I want someone to know me like that. I want to be committed to somebody in my 80s. Like, I want to build a life that gets me to that place. So young love and old love celebrated. You know what nobody hardly ever talks about? All of this. <laughs> like all of this. Like no one ever talks about just everyday fidelity because it's boring. Like everyday fidelity is boring. Like I deeply and desperately love my wife. It's a rare thing for me to wake up at 5 a.m. on Tuesday morning and just all my circuits blown by her beauty and, and giftedness. No, I'm, I'm just there, and I faithfully lean into the vows I made. In fact, if she were to testify, she would say there, there are times that I really bother her. Pray for her. <laughs> right? No, that, like there's this fidelity, there's this decision that I am my beloved's and my beloved's mine. I am going to stay faithful here and then to root myself in the relationship that I'm in. And Jesus' point here is there are Christians who out of adrenaline say yes to Jesus and when things get hard, not if they get hard, but when things get hard, they fall away. And actually the Greek word, it isn't really like fall away, but it's like take offense by. So that when life gets to, we give our lives to Jesus, we start following after him, we join a church, we find our people, we get in a group, we're, we're trying to faithfully live for Jesus. And then it gets hard, man. Like life is difficult. The Bible never promises you a life of ease. Like the good news of the gospel is you get Jesus and he's going to be enough come what may. It's not give your life to Jesus and he's like a genie or a butler. You ring the bell and he'll bring you what you want. That's, an, that's a demonic twisting of the gospel. You get God, which is what your heart was made for, and your heart will be sustained by his presence and grace, come what may. But if we're not rooted in the scriptures, we're not, we're not finding ourselves in Christian community. If we're rootless, then what happens is when life gets hard, we take offense. And like the enemy, we begin to accuse God of not being good. And we fall asleep. C.S. Lewis said this, Relying on God must begin again every day as though nothing has been done before. 
So I woke up in Melbourne, Australia this morning, rolled out of bed, oriented my heart to King Jesus. Today is your day. I am your son. Use me as you will. Give me opportunity and insight. Fill me with your power and grace. Give me your love for your people. Amen. I grabbed my iPad, my bag, tried not to wake my sleeping family that apparently are further along the jet lag train than I am and, and got out of here and came here. Like I'm trying to orient every day. I'm orienting my life around. I'm your son. You've called me to yourself. I want to be in your book. I want to submit to your scriptures, even when those scriptures bear weight on me. Like it's not uncommon for the Bible to tell me something about me I don't really care for. I don't know about you. I don't know if you're reading it like that. But there are times I'm coming across passages where I'd love for there to be an asterisk there. And then in the back of the Bible, a picture of me and say, except for you. Right? And, and yet, the call of God on my life is to root myself that one of us knows more than the other one of us. There is the eternal God of creation. And then there's me. Which I, I think I'm pretty smart. I mean, I'm, I'm all right. I think well. I read widely. I, I mean, I think I'm doing all right, but it's an asinine idea that I would be able to lecture God on anything. And so the right posture is you are God and I am not. Give me grace to submit to the commands on my life because in them is life. But more on that here in a bit. So you've got rootlessness, then you've got this last one, uh, which I like to just call the choke. The choke. This is Matthew 13 also. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Man, I'm so desperate for this not to be you. Unfruitful, struggling moralist that comes to church on the weekends. Jesus has so much more than that for you. It, by the grace of God, if he'll wake you up this morning into life and light and love, life could be so much more adventurous and full of love than you could fathom. And here's what he says here, that how, how do we get choked out in, and, and get put to sleep? So if you like watch MMA or you, you do jujitsu, you know, how you, how you get choked out? Well, here's what he says, the cares of this world. And the cares of this world would be uncertainty and anxiety. Hey, look right at me. The only thing that is certain about your life is uncertainty. The only thing certain about your life is uncertainty. And this is not saying that it's sinful for there to be uncertainty or for us to be anxious, but rather it will choke you out if you give your mindset and your heart over to that uncertainty and that anxiety, and then you try to play the part of God. Here, look at me, I love you. You know what you can control in life? Jack squat. Nothing. Like, what can, you, what can you control? You can eat all the spinach and blueberries you want. That doesn't mean that you're not going to get sick. You can have the best bank account, be diversified. That does not mean that you couldn't be wiped out by some weird kind of cataclysmic event. And I'm not trying to, like, like, like spark anxiety in your life. I'm trying to tell you that God's given us this place to take it. Where do I take my uncertainty? Where do I take my anxiety? Well, I take it to the one who is not uncertain and has never been anxious. And, and I don't shrink back when I'm anxious. I actually run to him. Like I go and I'm like, I don't like this. I don't get this. I, I need your help in this. My compulsion is to control. I am a striver, God help me. I am a worker and a mover and tell me what to do and point me to the hill you want me to take and, and I don't need a lot of sleep and want to grind for the kingdom and I'm a, that's how I'm built. And so what will happen at the church that I pastor, or goodness sakes, in my family is the compulsion is when something isn't making sense or I get concerned is like to double down on controlling it, to try to manipulate and hover and, and try to exert my will and I don't, that doesn't usually go well and it's exhausting. And he's saying here, no, 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 you'll get choked out. Bring that to me. Again, if you struggle with anxiety, 
It, that's not a sin. There's just this place for you to take your anxiety and not make it your mindset, not make it the thing that drives your life and keeps you up at night and, and, and makes you sick to your stomach. It's a, no, no, I'm gonna give this to you because you know and I don't know. I wanna trust you with this because I can't, but you can. But it's not just the uncertainty of this world. He says that it's the deceitfulness of riches. Now, this is important. It's not riches that are sinful in the same way that it's not anxiety that's sinful, but it's like the deceitfulness of riches. It's believing that riches might accomplish something that they cannot. In the middle of the Bible, there's um, these five books called the wisdom literature. Um, And some of the bookends of the wisdom literature are Job and Ecclesiastes. And Job and Ecclesiastes tell a similar story from different perspectives. So if you know your Bible, Job loses everything. I mean, he's wealthy and powerful and he loses everything except his wife who nags him and tells him to curse God and die. Loses all his wealth, loses all his children, loses uh, the respectability of his peers, loses the honor of his position in the city. And he's left only with his wife that says, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die, you fool. Thanks, hon. I mean, it's been a tough week, but I, pre- I feel better now. Thank you. Right? I mean, like, I would be like, Lord, can I have my donkeys back and will you take this woman? That's me, what I tell you about myself. I'm not trying, that's why I would literally be like, can you take her and give me back the dog? I just wrote the golden retriever was so kind to me. Would you please bring me back my pup? And in Job, he loses everything. And what we learn at the end of the book is even in the loss of everything, Jesus is enough. But Ecclesiastes is a man who gains everything. He has riches and women and vineyards and houses and power, and he's got all of it. And he says, hey, I did what you'll never be able to do. I went wild and I didn't lose my mind. And it's all meaningless. Like, you want to do a deep dive on Ecclesiastes, it'll blow your mind. Uh, like, Solomon's like, I'm going to test it all. And he starts out by, he, he would have, he started out with having a party, and, and then it was, man, that party was epic. He doesn't say that the party was boring. He's like, man, that party was lit. And after, like, after a month or two, he's like, ah, it's not, it's not really giving me what I want, so I'm going to do a bigger party. And, and the Bible tells us this story, that he, he makes it bigger, he invites more people, and then he does that for a while, and it's awesome. He's, he's not like, lame, he's like, Parties are amazing. And then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you can read in 1 Kings that at the height of this season of his life, he's got a barbecue that would, would feed 20, 30,000 people. Now, I don't know how hard you go here in Melbourne. You don't go that hard. You, you don't go killed 400 cows for this joint I'm throwing at my house tonight. Like, you don't go that hard. This is Solomon. And then he gets to the end of it and he says, this is vanity. This is meaningless. There's no life here. And, and then he, he gives himself over to sexual prowlness, man. It's just, he gives himself over to licentiousness and perversion and, and just like was not in want for any fantasy. And then he gets to the end of it and he's like, there's nothing here. There's nothing here. And then he gives himself over to business and, and he becomes the man. I mean, he's like ranches and vineyards and real estate. And I mean, he, he crushes the game and he gets to the end of it. And he's like, I've done all that can humanly be done. And there's nothing here. And then he gives himself over to just leisure. You know, it's like, you know, forget the grind. I'm going to take a mental health decade. <laughs> and, and he goes out and all, he, I mean, just chills, man. He just chills. And then he goes, there's nothing, dang it, there's nothing here either. Vanity, vanity, meaninglessness, meaninglessness. All is meaningless. And here's, here's why these two books are here. Because you probably are not suffering like Job, and you will never be Solomon. So on both ends, the Bible says this, money will not purchase for you fullness of life nor fullness of heart. Because the poor have a tendency to say, if I only had, then I would be happy. And the rich have a tendency to think, I need more of what I already possess to make me happy. Or some will be like, oh, my life is so complex. I wish things were more simple. So neither is satisfied and both convince themselves if they do more of what they've already done, that it'll yield a different result. And so Jesus is saying here that the deceitfulness of riches will choke you out, will put you to sleep, that the call on our life is contentment with where we are. Now, I'm not telling you not to grind. Like, I want you to be the CEO of your company. I do. I know what lost people do with power and money. I'd rather the people of God have it. 
right? So I want you to grind. I just don't want you to grind at the expense of your soul or the expense of your family. Now, Tim Keller just went home to be with Jesus, has these nine questions that he calls questions for sleepy Christians. So it's kind of this MRI that we'll take together today. So I want to ask you a series of questions so that you might go, oh man, have I fallen asleep? Am I a little sleepy? Did I nod off for a second without knowing it? Here's the, let me just walk through these. How real has God been this week to your heart? How clear and vivid is your assurance and certainty of God's forgiveness and fatherly love? Number three, are you having any particular seasons of sweet delight in God? Do you really sense his presence in your life? Number five, have you been finding scripture to be alive and active? Number six, are you finding certain biblical promises extremely precious and encouraging? And because Tim Keller was a Jedi, he said, which ones? Because he knows sleepy Christians, right? Because if you're a sleepy Christian, you know the right answers, but you're not actively living a life of faith then you could answer the question like, oh my gosh, Psalm 23 this week, it just rocked me. And he's like, okay, tell me, tell me more about which ones and what's that stirred up in you. He's trying to take from you kind of a regurgitation of facts not born of the Spirit. Verse seven, are you finding God challenging you and calling you to something through the word? In what ways? Number eight, are you finding God's grace more glorious and moving now than you have in the past? Do you have a growing appreciation for his mercy and grace? And number nine, are you conscious of a growing sense of evil in your heart and in response, a growing dependence on the grasp of the preciousness of the mercy of God? So I have been following Jesus 30 years, almost 31 years, which still is weird to me. In fact, I, I was saying 20 just, you know, like a year ago, my wife's like, it's been 30, Matt. So I'm like, oh, okay, 30, 30 years I've been following Jesus. I, I, am, I am more in tune with how far I have to go than I've ever been. And simultaneously more glad-hearted in his sustaining power and grace and his love for me despite that than I've ever been. So this awareness that, that he's saying here, this awareness of a growing sense of evil in my heart, it isn't, it isn't um, like condemning, but rather fuels the gratitude in my life. And it sets me free to not need your approval. Just sets me free to not need your approval. Because if you were to come to me and say, I can't believe this about you, I would say, that's it? That, that's all that you're concerned with? Oh my gosh, I'm concerned with way more than that about me. You should probably get further back and not so close because it's just going to get uglier as you move in. But I don't feel condemned by that because the one who knows already knows and he's found me lovable. And he's purchased for me purity and righteousness and beauty in a way I would never be able to earn because I'm a twisted, I'm a twisted thing of motives and, 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 and aggression. And I mean, it was just a hot mess. And the Lord's like, yeah, but you're mine. You're my hot mess. And this is what I think these questions help us with. And so here's the invitation. I want to answer this in my last five minutes here. Like, like what what do you wake up to? So here you've got, you know, the Apostle Paul's like kicking open the doors, like, the house is over, get up! You've fallen asleep, get up! What is he waking you up to? Well, that's the way the passage ends. Look back at our passage, and Christ will shine on you. What do you wake up to? You wake up to two things, life and light. That, that's the invitation. Oh no, you, you've fallen asleep. Wake back up to life and light, here's the way that John 1 would talk about this invitation. This is about Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So, so what's the invitation? Hey, you want life, like real life, like full life? You got to wake up. Do you want light? Do you want light in your soul and to exude from your life to the world around you? You got to get up. You've fallen asleep. The Bible is filled 
with this language of fullness of life being found only in King Jesus. Psalm 16, you have made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand forevermore. John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. The, 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 The argument of scripture is that outside of being awake in Jesus and following after him, we will always hit a ceiling that won't quite get us to life. I'm not saying you can't enjoy things. That's not the message of the Bible. You don't have to love Jesus to enjoy food and sex and money and vacations or holidays, I think you would say here. Hey, like you, you, can, you can do all of that and not know Jesus at all, but I love you enough to say you'll never experience the fullness of any of that outside of him. Solomon's argument is all there is in pleasure is pleasure. But the God of the Bible says, actually, if you're oriented around me, pleasure leads to worship, and worship is a higher standard of rejoicing and gladness. So that food and sex and holiday and money and all of that thing for the Christian rolls past itself into delight in the creator in a way that if you're not a Christian, just terminates on itself. And Solomon's argument's like, it's not gonna work. It's not gonna work. So it's 3.08 a.m., And I've got my little sister pinned to the couch and she is screaming at the top of her lungs. I have not caught my voice yet. I am still like trying to get her up. And I hear my mom's door open. My mom sticks her head outside of her door and says, Heather. And my sister immediately wakes up and the fear is gone. The book of Hebrews would say this to us. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so I'm, I'm here in Melbourne and in, a, and in a very real sense, the Lord sent me here today to say, wake and let the light of Christ shine on you and be filled with life yet again. Shake off the choke of anxiety and uncertainty rip away from the the spiritual choking out of the deceitfulness of riches. Root yourself in the scriptures through obedience and root yourself in a Christian community that'll hold you accountable. Holding someone accountable is not abusive. It's loving. To say that the best friendship is the one that would say, hey, I'm concerned about you, I love you, this area of your life, can you talk to me about it? If you would be aware that you're breathing in the anesthesia of deceit as you question his goodness and grace. Come awake, come alive, hear his voice, step back in, move back towards. I don't know what that looks like for you. But here's what I do know, that most often we're completely unaware that we're being put to sleep at all. Like it's a slow drift. The enemy's really good at what he does. He he doesn't like pounce on you. He just kind of slowly moves and works his way into your heart. He slowly begins to whisper things that that you're not even sure where that whisper came from. and, And you're even like, you think it's probably you talking to you. And, and you just start out wanting that next promotion because you, you, you want to use that money for the kingdom. And, and before you know it, actually, that motive is gone. And now you're just driving. You're just striving. You're just striving. You're just striving. Some of you started so well going, this is a sexual compulsion that the Lord would say that this will harm me. It will not be for my good. And because he's got it, I'm not. I'm going to trust him in that. And, and then you got, you got rid of the swipe left thing. You, you got rid of I mean, you've just kind of, you kind of built it. And then, man, over time... Over time, maybe you've been feeding your soul things that aren't good for it, and so that compulsion's grown stronger, and the whisper is, love is love. God doesn't care. If he does care, what does that say about him? Did he not make you this way? Is it not he who gave you these compulsions? How how could he possibly want to keep you from this? This is beautiful. He's not good. Yeah, he's not. Gosh, the way I've served him and now he's trying to take this from me? Not the 
broad, generous, but now narrow and restrictive. He is narrow. He is restrictive. He doesn't love me like that. It's subtle. And before we know it, we're out. Why don't you do me a favor? Why don't you just bow your heads and close your eyes? I've got just a couple little questions here, and, and, and we'll, we'll be done for our time. Well, I think we're going to sing. We're going to see if any of you want to be prayed for this morning. Here's what I'm going to do. Um, I, I just want to ask you some questions in the hopes that, that man, you'll, you'll be able to answer in a way that'll help you in regards to your relationship with Jesus. So I'm curious, and this will be interesting. I, I really can't see you. The lights are bright, but, um, but I'll just trust that the Lord's moving among us. If you're here this morning and at some point uh, as I was teaching or preaching um, the, the Holy Spirit did what the Holy Spirit does, which is uh, convict, and conviction's always an invitation back into life. So when we feel conviction, that's not shame. It's an invitation. Like, conviction is the Holy Spirit going, hey, come here. There's more for you than this. There, there's greater beauty. There's deeper life. There's more light. Come here. And so maybe as I was preaching and teaching, maybe as we read through the questions from Tim Keller, you went, oh my gosh, I don't know how it happened, but I've fallen asleep. I don't know when it happened. I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm not even sure which one of those happened to me, but something over the course of the last year, over the last three or four years has occurred. And I Man, I'm asleep today, and I, I need to ask the Holy Spirit to further wake me up. If that's you, would you just raise your hand where you're no shame in this? Or just get that hand high like we don't have any Baptist roots. Praise God. Hey, listen, there's quite a few of us in here. Again, this is something that we will lean into Jesus for the rest of our lives. There's no shame in saying, I don't know how it happened to me, but I've fallen asleep. Praise God. Hey, thank you for that honesty. Why don't you go ahead and put your hands down? Here's what I want to do. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and I think we're going to sing some, and then we're going to create some space for you to be prayed for. And, and what I would love for you to do, especially if you raised your hand, you're like, dang it, I don't know how it happened, but I've fallen asleep. I want you to step out in faith and come grab the hand of a man or woman who's on our prayer team here and receive prayer. Now, you can pray in your seat. You're a child of God. You can, but there's something that activates faith when we move and we step into the light with other Christians. There's something that quickens and wakens in us. I would, I would say faith is activated when we step into it, right? So you could stay in your seat and you can go, oh, thank you for this word, Jesus. I want to wake back up. Thank you for, you know, kind of setting the alarm on my heart today. But I want to encourage you to activate that faith during that time by getting up and walking up here and grabbing the hand of somebody on this prayer team and saying, I have fallen asleep. I think this is how it's happened. Please pray for me and then let them pray over you and then encourage you in regards to next steps so that we might not fall right back asleep. We don't want to hit the spiritual snooze button and just bail out of here only to fall right back asleep, okay? What a gift God's grace is to his children. He is moving towards you in love this morning. It'd be a sad thing for you to, when all said and done, hit the snooze button and leave in such a way that you just doze right back off. He's trying to intervene in your heart. Father, I bless these men and women in the name of Jesus. I ask that in your grace and in your power, you would quicken our souls to delight in you. Father, where would that whisper of you not being good and you not being gracious and you not caring would be exposed for the lies of the enemy and that we might, we might spot it for what it is and combat it with truth. And man, these are anxious times and scary times and so where anxiety has become our mindset, would you forgive us? Let us not take offense to the difficulty of life but bring that difficulty of life into your presence that we might be met with grace and strength and hope. And so we ask you, King Jesus, let us hear your voice. Thank you that in you is life, and that life is our light. So let us walk in the light. And it's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.